If you heard episode 6 and 8, you might recall that Penny and I had explored some of Changshu City, our new Chinese home. We'd seen the nearby grassy plains, some of the watery farmlands, and hiked up the mountain. But apparently there was more exploring to do, because... It was the unmistakable thump of a penny knock. I was in prime laziness mode, so much so that I donned Thai massage pants and was bound to the sofa like the floor was lava. Today my journey shall be like no other, I had said to myself, a journey of mind and body to a galaxy far, far away. All of the Star Wars movies back to back, totally epic. Wanna visit the lake? Not the lake here, but another lake. I found a lake near the mountain. Beautiful, long lake. Apparently Penny had found a lake. We can get there by following the four bus. Oh, I found a basket. Basket Street, just south of the lake. Not this lake, the lake I found. Oh, so beautiful. They have these handmade baskets, all smiley old people hanging around by the canals. Are you with me? Can I come in? I'll show you the map. Penny had nominated a push bike for herself, the best from an exclusive range of worst bikes money can buy that the school offered. Still, they were free for use. She had all of her necessities crammed into the hamper at the front. Nuts, seeds, hat, cash. I had a regular crap bike with no hamper. Before even reaching the local shops, I knew that this bike was going to be the bane of my day. I could only hope that the pleasantries of the trip itself would negate this uncomfortable metal contraption. Autumn was truly upon us, and the heat that accompanied our first few weeks had passed. Today was about the best that autumn could offer. Fresh blue skies and browning leaves. Men in conical hats whisked the dry leaves away with brooms made of shaved bamboo. North of the university was the only big road, after which we plummeted into poor, bustling districts of run-down garment factories that would make health and safety inspectors faint. Changshu is known for its clothing industry, and, as my winter coat would later attest, not for quality. Piles of yellow trousers amassed outside one shop, piles of blues outside another. Idlers squatted beside the road, tapping their phones. More still played pool or sat on e-bikes, talking. Young women inside the dark and dusty buildings buzzed their sewing machines, pedals to the metal, racking up some serious stitch mileage. These had to be the closest things to sweatshops that I'd ever seen. And while they lacked the plump managers with whips, scuffing donuts, as, as I imagine sweatshop slave drivers to be, they left little to be desired. Indeed, these are the urban poor hammering out a living in search of a better tomorrow. And the bigger that pile gets, the better tomorrow is likely to be. It's a far cry from the real sweatshops or, God forbid, the dreaded peasant poor countryside in China's interior. Although, let's be frank about it, prospects for a better tomorrow are real all across China. Now, well into the 21st century, with all the progress that's been made in bringing people out of poverty, the factories in developing countries that make products for the world's middle classes still overwork people to death. There's even a Chinese word for it, guolaosu, or drive people to suicide. In Shenzhen, southern China, there is a walled city run by the Taiwanese tech giant Foxconn. Hundreds of thousands of people live and work here and in nearby villages, making computer chips and touchscreens for Apple, HP and others. A modern-day Bourneville, with netting to catch jumpers. 2010 was Foxconn's most infamous year, when 14 people died, mostly by throwing themselves from buildings. The company raised salaries, installed nets, and made the workers sign a no-suicide pledge. The world groaned. During this time, a poet called Shu Li Zhe worked at Foxconn City. 
He tried and failed to get jobs elsewhere, and found his life defined entirely by his job at Foxconn. He wrote bitterly about it. Here's one of his poems called A Screw Fell to the Ground. The English version, at least. A screw fell to the ground in this dark night of overtime, plunging vertically, lightly clinking. It won't attract anyone's attention, just like last time, on a night like this, when someone plunged to the ground. He wrote this poem in early 2014. By the end of the year, he too had jumped. At the edge of Changshu City, there were these suburban communities, small streets lined with houses on one side, canals on the other. Some of them look over endless acres of cornfields, crossed with pale single-carriage avenues of small trees and sometimes little man-made forests. And these big houses, all finished with the same slippery brick which reminds me of the wall in swimming pools. Follow the drainpipe skywards and you come to a roof, a jade green or red, with more than a hint of the ski slope. But before long, the roof levels out, as if only the lower part is important. Safe to say, you won't get much space in your attic for those old records. In some communities, these houses operate as the hub of a business, with curious liquids spilling out from tiny pipes and steam bellowing from chimneys. The huge ground floor on these four-storey suburban homes looks like a miniature clothing factory to the passing observer, with the family sewing and folding huge sheets of fabric. One begins to wonder if the thousands of clothing companies in Changshu's official record is an underestimate. The number of shops lining the street which exclusively sold sewing machines was alarmingly indicative of the extent of the trade going on. There was no Starbucks here, just tattered convenience stores with lopsided pool tables out front, the whir of sewing machines and oh-so-many e-bikes. They passed us as we snuck down a pathway where the buildings were only a single story and the lampposts were just as high. We made it to the southern end of Shanghu Lake, Yushan Mountain's watery twin sister. The lake was placid and the winding tree-lined road that circled it was mostly empty. But after a while there was a sharp population increase which included no less than two police cars. With subtlety neglected, tourists were greedily devouring the situation for subsequent gossip. They lined the lakeside and nattered to the police, none of whom seemed to be reprimanding anyone. The reason soon became apparent. The wrongdoer was not on land. A single policeman, ignoring the revellers, stood like Nelson with a telescope, peering out at the swimmer in the calm waves. No shouts were heard, just patient waiting. We waited with the policeman and the others for this adventurer to exit the lake, but he was in no hurry and alternated between a smooth breaststroke and lazily floating on his back like an otter. Eventually he strolled out, all speedos and the rest, and stopped for a quick anticlimactic word with the policeman. The crowd exchanged glances and dispersed, and the swimmer stood proudly, basking in his controversial achievement. Off we went bitching about the school on the clockwise trail around Shanghu Lake. Penny was teaching 7th grade English, maths and physics, of course, she did all this in English, which supposed that the young teenager's English skills were functioning impressively well. But Penny rejected this. They did economics in English, but cooking in Chinese, she told me. So their basic everyday English was bad, but they knew words like inflation. She sounded somewhat resigned, but not yet beaten. Penny wasn't one to give up on a fight, and while the task appeared to be a big one, she maintained the staunch resolve of a mountain goat on a cracking glacier in an earthquake. I could see it in her eyes. She spoke at a speed that NASA would like to harness and use in shuttles. 
the road pulled away from the bank of the lake, through pretty fake forest. An opening in the bushes led back to a cosy lakeside spot where we stopped. Penny was paddling before you could say Chinese policeman on patrol. But she soon found herself wading through Qingdao beer bottles, half submerged in the mucky sand. Beer drinking is not particularly common in China, and we were saddened to have found one of the local pissheads' favourite dumping spots. Across the lake we saw Yushan from the side, stretching off to the left and right to about the same distance. We spotted mountainside temples and saw just how little of the mountain we'd scaled during our previous hike. I wondered to myself how this sole mountain had managed to spurt itself out of the utterly flat surroundings, but I imagined it would be a mystery I'd never get to the bottom of. I did, however, excavate one story about an artist whose muse was the mountain. It was written to me on WeChat, China's WhatsApp, by teacher colleague Chloe, who was practising her English. I was giving her the occasional informal English lesson. Her story about the artist went, literally, like this. Long, long ago, there had a go old man by the Yushan under the bridge. He always messy and drink. It is an artist famous about drawing. So many people want to draw the mountain very well, but they never achieve it. But that old man make a decision about drawing it and must do it well. Then he walk around the mountain ten times, finally choose that bridge as a point to watch the whole mountain. Day by days, he walk in the sunshine and moon, drink and row. The old man don't have any interest about money and job, just make friends with farmer. They give some fish and food to the old man. The old man drink every day. After drink, he throw the bottle in the river. The scenery of Yushan always change, sunshine, rainy, snowy, and so on. After many years, the old man didn't draw any picture about Yushan. People all laugh at him. One day, he invite many artists go to the bridge. He said, today I invite you guys here only drink can't draw picture. But I will draw and don't drink. Then he used two hours to draw the Yushan, 72 pictures in total. So many beautiful scenery in every season, so nice, he draw it even forget himself. There years he never talk about that, but he would give a big surprise to everyone, that's all. So he's the one who's been dumping the bottles. We had a snack in an expensive cafe and biked back towards the city. Without a doubt, my initial impression of Changshu had been totally misleading. What seemed all Walmart, handbags and beeping horns had become colourful scenery, bustling market streets and beeping horns. Back in the city, we veered off to visit the pagoda, the ancient city's centrepiece. Feng Ta Pagoda, meaning square tower, rises through nine tapered stories of yellow and red, 67 metres high, looking something like a caterpillar reaching for the sky. It dates from the Song Dynasty, 1130 AD, Around it is a garden for which you have to pay a small token charge. We paid this, sauntered in, finding ourselves in a serene garden of rock and water. Don't know about Penny, but I felt my heart rate drop a few pulses. We circled the small, handsome ponds, one of which is named the Drunk Magistrate's Pool, after an 8th century local alcoholic calligraphy master called Zhang Shu, known for writing beautiful script with his own hair. We crossed little bridges, bought green tea. The green tea sent waves of conversation through us, mostly relating to other foreigners who worked with us. Mark had fallen afoul of us both, judged guilty of Islamophobia by me and sexism by Penny. Eddie was a troublemaker, 
or at least had a serious bug up his butt. Resentment flowed out of him like the many canals in this city. Kelly was calculated and grumpy and demanding and hungry. She'd had disagreements with Arizona man and his wife about the homework of their daughter Louisa. The Arizona man himself was kind-hearted but delusional, to the detriment of Louisa's education. Shirley was quiet and professional, although her heart lied in Sujo, where the parents have more intelligence, as she said, and the school is better organised. Only Phil from Quebec seemed content. He always answered with good whenever I asked how he was. He never elaborated much beyond that. As for Penny and myself, well, we were just bitching about everyone. Exiting the city, heading north on Hushan Road, the old women were weeding the bushes which lined the empty streets. They wore bright orange tabards and large bamboo hats and were completely preoccupied with their lively conversation. Their eyes followed us as we rode past, squinting with curiosity, and lit up when we said, Ni hao. They laughed and waved and ni haoed in return. One even said hello. The motto goes, An old warhorse in the stable still longs to gallop a thousand li. The li being a measurement of distance in China. And the elderly Chinese remain a vital part of the economic ecosystem. Most vitally, grandparents take care of the young children while the parents work. And hence the large family is often extremely close, often living in the same building. Where parents move to cities to find work, the kids stay in their hometown with the grandparents. They are notoriously generous to their Xiao Huangdi, little emperor, or Xiao Gongzhu, little princess. New words which have sprung up as the one-child policy came into contact with an abundance of consumer goods. You can also find the oldies riding three-wheelers throughout the city, at an alarmingly slow pace, sometimes being overtaken by other old people who are just walking. Others have wooden planks on their shoulders from which hang baskets of strawberries or pine nuts. For all the bad driving, the elderly are the most blasé beings in town. Neither man nor truck will stop them wandering out into that road. Neither a horn nor a violent swerve will cause them to flinch. They amass in the squares and dance together without so much of a thought as to whether their music is annoying people or causing any inconvenience. They occasionally take over Ikeas in China, looking for places to natter and stay warm. Hard-earned longevity has given them a license to roam. And after all the shit that these people have gone through in the last 50 years in China, I say why not. And we'll explore some of these tried and true traditions in China next time, because it's time to introduce the great sage himself, Confucius. And a friend from Shanghai is going to join me to discuss how the old master's ideas still remain relevant in modern China. So until then, this is Teacher Adam signing off another episode of Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you keeping one eye on the controversies at the Beijing Winter Olympics, and wondering whether war is soon to return to Europe, courtesy of Vladimir Putin. May you live in interesting times, as the old Chinese curse doesn't go.